This is a Forwardly podcast. Hi, I'm Dee Gantrum, and this is my podcast, Sidetrack. This series we're doing on John Carpenter has been some of the most fun I've had doing this podcast thus far. So without any further to do, let's deep dive the crap out of three JC classics, Escape from New York, The Thing, and Christine. As always, we speak our minds here on Sidetrack, and there are major spoilers ahead. You have been warned. Back when I was uh, made The Thing, I had only done uh, my own films, uh, independent movies. And then this was the first studio film I ever did, and this was the biggest budget I ever worked with. The movie tanked when it came out, by the way. It was hated, hated by fans. I lost a job. People hated me. They thought I was this horrible, violent, uh, and I was. Welcome back in for episode two of our John Carpenter career retrospective. Joining me today, fresh back from his stint at Outpost 31, is Mark Talley. Mark, how are you doing today? I'm good. I'm great. I uh, can't wait to get inside the walls of Manhattan, get this thing going. <laughs> Before we started talking about the movies, one thing I wanted to talk about was I went and watched Baby Driver. Really funny scene in there where they have the Michael Myers mask, the yeah, baby versus yeah, Mike the, Myers, the one yeah, we just yeah. discussed on the last podcast. And then I watched this movie with my kid last night called uh, Mitchell's versus Machines. In the first three minutes, there's like multiple Carpenter references. In one week alone, I've seen so many Carpenter references. His arm stretches so far and cast such a shadow over a lot of cinema. Even to this day, we're looking at decades later and people are still paying homage to him even in more modern films. Yeah, he's uh, still relevant for sure. Have you seen Dark Star yet? Did not watch Dark okay. Star yet, All no. Right. All right, so we're still waiting on the Dark Star. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, that's funny. The check-in, I forgot, <laughs> I forgot about Dark Star. I'm going to do this at the top of every uh, podcast. So uh, we get it, so. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> You know, we talked about how he can make a dollar stretch last time. You know, one of the other things that I really do appreciate is his work ethic. And when I was looking at, over his filmography, basically doing like a movie a year, which yep. for a director at this point in his career is fucking nuts. Because Halloween came out in 78, Elvis came out in 79, The Fog came out in 80, Escape from New York 81, The Thing 82, Christine 83, Starman 84. He skips one year mm-hmm. in Big Trouble uh, for 86, and then Prince of Darkness 87, They Live 88. And there's a little bit of gap after that. <laughs> That is such a streak of really yeah. good movies. Even the gap you're talking about, it's only like a couple of years here, maybe three years there. It's like They Live and then Memoirs like a year or two later. And I was mm-hmm. like, the difference in those two movies is insane to me. The fact that he's popping out like a movie year for me was incredible work ethic. I think that's one of the things I wanted to bring up before we dive into the first movie, which we're going to do, which is 1981's Escape from New York. This is New York City in 1997. The United States Police Force has its headquarters on the Statue of Liberty because in 1997, the entire city is a wall, maximum security prison. Breaking out is impossible. Breaking in is insane. John Carpenter's Escape from New York. Starts Friday at the Town Cinema and the Sundown, rated Restricted Adult. A rogue, one-eyed badass named Snake Plissken has to save the American president with a faint British accent from New York, which has basically been turned into a Walmart on Black Friday. Mark, what's your initial thoughts on 1981's Escape from New York? We talked about this where you're just kind of dropped in to certain Mm -hmm. movies. 
that's kind of like what you get with this, but literally with Snake. He's just dropped in yeah. and he's got to just hit the ground running and complete a mission. And that's the greatest thing about the movie, too, is it just never stops. And just following Snake, once he gets off that bus, you're just with him the rest of the way. I love movies like that where you're just constantly on the move. It's just a great adventure movie. A budget of $6 million ended up grossing $25 million. Opening theme, straight black. You get those tones and themes that he does with his music. The title's over that. You get that voiceover with Jamie Lee Curtis explaining what it is that's happened to New York. You're just off and running. Just uh, setting the stage musically. Mm -hmm. And you see all the Carpenter players coming up too, like mm -hmm. some of the names you recognize with Kurt yeah. Russell's. I mean, he was the Disney guy, he, right? Back to Yeah, we yeah. Before. And they worked together on Elvis, but this is their first collaboration theatrically. And then Harry Dean Stanton pops up and it's like, oh man. I mean, obviously we're going to talk about more of it with The Thing because I think acting maybe wise, probably there's a better chemistry going on with the actors. With The Thing, you're dealing more with everyone not being able to trust each other and just the pressure cooking that is that movie as far as like just awesome cast you can't not say that having Ernest Borgnine and Lee Van Cleef and Donald Pleasance and Isaac Hayes and, and Stanton I mean, that's got to be his best cast for him to be able to shoot a New York that's in ruins would cost millions and millions and millions of dollars they were able to shoot in St. Louis after a massive fire in 1976 it looked enough like Manhattan I really enjoyed and noticed the areas that they shot in when they were mm -hmm. on the streets of St. Yeah. Louis the way they would pepper that with filth and trash and yeah. even oh, the, the wreck of the plane that they did have to, to wheel in still to be able to set that up in the middle of friggin real city looking at the three that we did before not just a step above this is like a giant leap for carpenter kind this is the first movie to actually shoot on liberty island and then the big thing that we should talk about was him shooting on the new panavision panaflex gold cameras and they had just invented these new panavision anamorphic super high speed lenses which is reason that the cundy was able to shoot so easily at night. There's a quote where he says, when we made Escape from New York, we were at the point where there was new equipment available. HMI lights were becoming feasible and Panavision had developed new lenses with the 1.59 T-stop, which enabled us to shoot in low light and large expanses of land. They had St. Louis, Missouri, and they were able to shoot for blocks, but I mean, you can't see more than like 20 or 30 feet down the road if you're not lighting at all. Once they were able to invent these lower F-stop lenses, that's why Escape from New York was able to come alive. The one last thing I want to talk about with production, the James Cameron did work on this movie. He was working for a company called New World at the time, and he did some of the matte paintings, and they're fantastic. Yeah, they're great. The comp shots of the matte paintings, watching it in 4K, which was great, they stood out more. It's kind of in the best way because you get a real solid look at that lost art of the matte oh, yeah. painting and the oh, composition yeah. of it and everything like the, the destroyed bridge. We were talking about Lee Van Cleef. Kind of interesting for him to pull up in a limo. I thought that was an interesting intro <laughs> yeah. for him. That yeah, yeah, yeah. So the funny. <laughs> big, big man. Man, big man on campus, <laughs> commander of like a prison. A couple empty champagne bottles pop out, like <laughs> yeah. hit the ground. The Air Force one that gets hijacked. There's that blonde guy who's not really doing a good job of banging on the door. That's uh, Gerald Ford's son, the president's uh, son. What? <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. What? Maybe I got past that because as soon as it cut to the cockpit, I was like, hey, the nurse from Halloween. I was like, oh, great. When you talk about character development, it doesn't always have to be in dialogue. And I thought that was a very bold move for snake to ignore a raping that was going on. He really does not give a shit about anything but survival. It totally continues to just set the stage of the mood and how, number one, what he's in the middle of, and number two, how he's just on mission. Even when the woman who comes up to him and wants to leave... Yeah, his, his ex-wife, by the way, in real life. Oh, really? Season Hubley. Kurt Russell's? That's Kurt Russell's ex-wife. She played Priscilla Presley in the Elvis movie. But that makes sense. They were married at the time. So it was like this weird reunion on yeah. screen 
for them, kind of, from yeah. TV to theater. And I was like, well, that's interesting. And then, boom, she's like just sucked through the floor. <laughs> so what's quicker? The love relationship between Chockful and Nuts Girl that you're talking about or yeah. Rambo and Co. in Rambo 2? Oh, God. Because dear God, you man. You did it. You did it, Rambo. Two quickest relationships in, in cinema history. That is pretty funny. Carpenter and Russell both killed off their ex-wives and escaped from New York. wonder what kind of message that was. <laughs> yeah, right pretty there. good. When you realize that the crazy ass shit that he's been seeing so far isn't even the worst group of people yet, that the crazies are about to be unleashed, all the raping and the beating and all the other stuff that the other people are doing, the hobos and bums, they're normal people. It's not until the crazies get tapped on the sewers that we're like, oh no, these are the real bad people. Yeah, you haven't seen shit other. yet. Although we did see the guy when he shows the finger. You touch me, he dies. If you're not in the air in 30 seconds, he dies. If you come back in, he dies. Twenty seconds. I'm ready to talk. Nineteen. Eighteen. What do you want? Seventeen. Sixteen. Let's go. Let's go. 1918 is great. I love that, man. Oh, then the guy he, he played the white warlord in Assault, right? He was the guy who shot the little girl. Oh, that's yeah, Frank Doubleday. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's <laughs> he's got standout roles in a couple of Carpenter films. When he tracks the president's wrist monitor mm -hmm. to George Buck Flower, so there's yes. Buck again. Yeah, uh, that's such a great moment. Because it's so it's, fucked up, man. Because you have to question: Is he into getting beat down? Because he turns around with a big smile after guys has yeah. been like punching him and punching him in the back. And and I love the proof about it when he holds the walkie-talkie up and then he's just like hail to the chief all right get your machine ready i'm coming out 18 hours pliskin listen to me Hulk. the president is dead you got that somebody's had him for dinner pliskin if you get back in that glider i'll shoot you down you climb out i'll burn you off the wall you understand that pliskin Dude, you've yeah. only been in there two hours. You're right away, out, bro. Yeah, right away. The first fail, and he's like, get me out of here. Yeah, I think Cleef even says, bro, you got another 18 hours, man. You're, yeah, you're not yeah. coming home yet. What I talked about earlier about the movie just moving and moving and moving. All this stuff is just happening seemingly at once. I love the coincidence of all these things just falling into place. Like right. Snake gets delivered. Plane gets hijacked right mm -hmm. before that. They don't know the code for Air Force One, which I, I find that hard to believe. Right. They didn't know the, right, code, right, right. the code name. But then it's a great moment, though, when it finally gets translated the 80s future computers <laughs> yeah the it's 80s so graphics awesome. you gotta love yeah. that shit so man. awesome yeah, and even well. all in the background with the lights and the, yeah. the gears turning it's so yeah great. anything that blinked i think back then became set piece i believe <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah everything's just happening at once and mm -hmm. even when he goes into the theater and there's that like little musical number and people yeah. are kind of entertaining themselves and it looks like carpenter is he's in, in the band. There, yeah. Yeah, yeah i was like that looks like him playing guys. kazoo and guitar yeah yeah <laughs> that's like, it I saw him right away i was like what the cabbie's intro is awesome when mm -hmm. artist organized just like bopping his head and smiling ear yeah. to ear and, it, and then he looks over and he recognizes the snake and there's that mm -hmm. whole running gag i thought you were dead the station wagon that they're trying to get away with man i swear to god that is the family truckster from the vacation movies man <laughs> <laughs> that's funny dude the cabbies molotovs where he's just hey anyway blah 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 <laughs> lighting the thing so uh throwing yeah. instant death to these people yeah. in the alley. 
Here we go. Do, 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 do. Like, Instant great. death. Yeah. The Duke shooting with his cowboy boots. Do you think he has good aim or bad aim in that scene? Oh, I, he's got to have terrible aim. <laughs> he's got to, because it looks like he's seriously setting up to right. try to shoot the right. case. Is he missing on purpose or is he just that bad? I know? mean, maybe but it's both. Maybe he is he's using a cowboy on. boot for, for shooting. So <laughs> it's so weird, too. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and let's talk about the damn chandeliers hanging off of his car. <laughs> It's so over the top. It's wonderful. Anytime you have insane people who have survived, when they've been left to their own resources for too long, almost kind of a Lord of the Flies type of situation. And when you take rule and absolute out of the equation, yeah, you're going to get nut jobs who take absolute power and they put chandeliers on their car. There's so many things as far as the world building in this movie that when you go back and watch it more and more times, you notice the way people dress or the way people act. Going back to the theater, the fact that that's their entertainment. You have people probably being forced up there by gunpoint to entertain people. And they had the gladiator yeah. fights. When you leave people alone for too long, especially if it's you know a world of inmates that have been set free in New York, yeah, you're going to get like insanity like that. But yeah, I love the chandeliers yeah. on the car for sure. It's it's another storytelling vehicle. Yeah, it's just a weird touch. And and then you know just to say, oh, the Duke. Can you? You can't hear the cat meowing, can you? No. Okay, <laughs> no. good. I was like, oh. every time we, if we're in here with the door shut, one of our cats is just standing out there. Pissed off. Yeah. It's like, I want to talk about the Duke. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, but no, like just the mention of the Duke sends Cabby like running for the hills. And oh, yeah. I love how fast he makes it down the street. Clearly, he, he's there. It swish pans over to the car. And when it comes back, there's almost like a puff of smoke behind yeah. him. <laughs> yeah. It's like, there's no way Ernest Borgnine is that quick to get down the alley that fast. The 69th Street Bridge that they have to drive over with all the landmines. And I love that score, dude. He adds these almost kind of like Caribbean drumbeat into that. Man, I don't yeah. know. such an interesting, but I love that part of the score, though, for sure. Man, Carpenter does this a lot. No one lives in his fucking movies, man. That is just like an onslaught of just everyone getting. Just right Shots. there in almost the same scene. It's just oh, like, dude. but yeah. I love how Adrian Barbeau, when she just takes that stand, when she sees that Brandon's yeah. dead, she yeah. just is like, clearly looks over at him like, I'm not coming. And I was like, oh God so good and she's just firing away at the duke just mm -hmm. it's awesome and what's kind of cool is they talk about this so much with snake's character how he really didn't care about anyone and they say how that was really the only time that he lets his guard down ever so slightly he asks her to come with him because that's the only brief second that he doesn't give a shit about anyone else except for himself and she yeah. doesn't want to go because she's got a love for brain and so she sticks it out and doesn't last much longer but she sticks it out her shot where she's dead they had test audiences not knowing did she live or did she die and this scene where she's laying on the ground with blood adrian barbeau's garage they shot that that one oh, shot. that's cool it yeah. fits perfectly that's yeah it awesome. does but that was in carpenter's garage you know it's time. funny that no one yeah that, that's great I, I just don't understand why people couldn't understand that she got hit by that car it's the early so, 80s like, bro. awful you're like oh <laughs> yeah but yeah, yeah you need just the ketchup like all over and like just laying there. One of the cuts I really enjoyed was when they talked about taking Broadway when they're trying to get away from the Duke. And they're like, oh God, it's Broadway. And he's like, what's wrong with Broadway? And then it just cuts to that gauntlet of people just throwing right. shit at him. Yeah, like, I yeah, love yeah. that. It was just a great cut, just yeah. right into it. You don't need any kind of like build up. You just have the one line and then you see it. It's great that the scenes are the separation of the joke, the delivery. And then the punchline isn't until the next scene, which I love. That all comes down to the timing. And Carpenter has that a lot in his movies as far as how to keep not just an engaging movie, but a, a funny movie, you know, and I love those payoffs like that yeah. you're talking about. I understand budget costs and all that stuff, but I thought it was kind of funny that they only had two military guys pulling up the president because the Duke shows up, splatters them with, with machine gun <laughs> fire. And there's only two guys for 
ask him in the present, I probably would set more than just two people like pulling up the winch. Yeah. You know, for sure. So maybe that, well, maybe he is a bad shot then because he didn't <laughs> yeah. hit him at all. Yeah, when he sprayed exactly. the whole wall with, with automatic weapons. Yeah, that's funny. very true. Pleasant's uh, gunning down the Duke. Dude, he goes crazy. He was an actual POW in World War II. Donald Pleasance Pleasance was, yeah. Yeah. I wonder if his captors ever put a blonde wig on him. (laughs) I know. Weird. The shot of him in that blonde wig killed me, man. The end when Snake and Hawk are getting along. You gonna kill me now, Snake? I'm too tired. Maybe later. I've got another deal for you. I want you to think it over while you're resting. I want to give you a job. We'd make one hell of a team, Snake. The name's Pliskin. Gotta be honest with you, I'm kind of bummed we never saw uh, the new adventures of uh, Lee Van Cleef and Kurt Russell, man. That, yeah, I think that, that would have been, been a badass cool. team up. Man, I love that tape switch, dude. That's such dude. a funny-ass joke. Awesome. Yeah, man. And it's the a good bands. middle finger to authority, yeah. which Carpenter has very, very clearly expressed. He does not like authority at all. Just look at Pleasance. After he's fine and out of there, he's mm-hmm. straight up just concerned about the whole politician thing. He's concerned about how he looks. He's getting his makeup ready mm-hmm. for the camera. He's, he doesn't even really give a shit about yeah. Snake. It cuts to him. Him, that dolly shot of him just yeah ripping the tape out ripping it out it's a great way to end that movie so cool because it's the cabbie's music he just got done asking the president hey a bunch of people died for your safety what do you think on that and, and you know he was so bullshit nonchalant about it and then his big middle fingers to the tape switch to have the cabbie music it's just another reminder as he walks off into the sunset being a badass as he's unraveling the tape you still hear the cabbie music and it's a great ode to the fallen soldiers that, that made sure the president got yeah. out okay one of the things i wanted to talk about was just where we were at in 1981. I wanted to go over a couple movies. Michael Mann's Thief came out, Stripes, Scanners, Evil Dead, Time Bandits, Howling, Blowout with uh, Travolta, Road Warrior, Dawes Boot, Four Your Eyes Only, American Werewolf, and Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that's a great fucking year. And that's a, you know, I mean, that's good company. It's interesting. We just came out of a pandemic and we're we're scratching for good. I don't want to say content. I fucking hate that word. But, you know, Mm -hmm. we're scratching for good movies. I'm giving like maybe 5% of what came out that year just to kind of give you an idea where we're at as far as like budgets and what people were doing i long for the days of those kinds of marquees <laughs> yeah, you know? dude. like nowadays yeah. you look and like i know exactly what the hell i'm going to see mm-hmm. way before i get to the theater oh, yeah. and, it's not a choice yeah there's no picks. God, i couldn't i can't imagine like <laughs> sometimes that happens where there's like a whole bevy of stuff and i'm like mm-hmm. i can't wait to see all this stuff that's awesome we were talking about carpenter's influences in other movies especially escape from new york i see this movie copied a million times over yeah. did you ever see doomsday the Neil Marshall movie? Oh, no, I never did. I know what you're talking about, though. Yeah. I never did. It's good. I've seen a lot of other stuff, if not all of his other stuff. Well, let me take that back. The first half. The first half is good. What, of Doomsday? Yeah. Second half. I need. Sorry. I mean, I want to see it because I'm a big fan of his work on just his movies, like The Descent, and then even his work on Game of Thrones. Anytime mm-hmm. they needed badass action, they bring him in. He just dropped, they, they dropped a movie on Shudder that he did called The Reckoning. Yes, and I really want to see that. Yeah, and really? so I'm like, oh, I want to hit the, witch, the witch movie, right? It looks like it's got an action bent, too like horror yeah. action almost like the way yeah. he does but yeah e- either way i heard neil marshall and i was like all right yeah. why well, check I out doomsday the second half kind of folds and doesn't isn't yeah. as strong but his homage to carpenter and all that shit in the first half it's pretty solid man dude anytime somebody can 
do a carpenter blueprint, I'm down, man. Like Robert Rodriguez, Planet Terror. That is mm-hmm. a straight carpenter oh, yeah. movie. It is a yeah. carpenter. I don't want to say ripoff because he you can tell he does it lovingly. There is one more movie I wanted to talk about that had an influence by Escape from New York. Have you ever seen the movie Lockout with Guy Pierce? No. Okay. That, so, that's also going to be a running theme here, apparently. Yeah. No, <laughs> okay. like, no, 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 no. All the sorry. time. No. Um, it's an okay movie. It is an exact replica of Escape from New York. It is very hard in court to prove that you're ripping off another movie, especially a genre oh. film. I mean, it is almost impossible. <laughs> Even if you tweak just 5%, you can get away with it. Carpenter found out about this movie, watched it, sued Luc Besson, the fifth element guy, and Europa Corp, and they ended up winning $95,000 for this court case. They had to pay Carpenter, Nick Castle, and Studio Canal. Besson has a big problem with this because he's like, look, why would I purposely rip off a well-known movie? You guys are going to catch me doing it. I did not rip this movie off. He reappealed it to the courts. The courts looked into it even further. ruled in favor of Carpenter and came back with an even larger settlement. Now, Luc Besson has to pay $500,000. Is this recently? No, this is a while ago. But so under the court ruling, they said massively borrowed key elements from Escape from New York. So he started off only having to pay $95,000, complained about it, didn't shut his mouth. Later, he has to pay $500,000. And again, I cannot stress enough how hard it is to prove, especially in genre films, that you ripped off a movie. But now when you look up Lockout and IMDb, or if you look it up, he's it's credited as based on story by John Carpenter. Oh, which he had nothing to do with the movie ever, oh, but because he won the court case, they have to credit him it's as Carpenter story. man with that handout, like you're saying. <laughs> it's a big I, shadow. Honestly, all I hear, all I hear that when I hear that story, all I hear is like Snake wins again. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So Luke Besson actually did that movie. It was written and directed by a guy named Stephen St. Ledger and his partner James Mather, and they ended up having to pay some of the money too. Besson was, I believe, with the producer and he was one of the co-writers and I believe it's under the Europa Corp uh, pictures that he owns. So they, again, 95000 the first time, 500000 the second time. So oh, 500000 Keep your fucking mouth shut next time. Yeah, dude. No wonder Carpenter hasn't made anything since 2010. <laughs> Just keep suing people. <laughs> Um, As much as I love, love, love this movie, and I I seriously do love this fucking movie. It's got a great score. It's beautifully shot. It's a great career jump for Kurt Russell, who, again, was just playing Disney characters at the time. This is his first major set of testicles type role. I mean, I love this movie head to toe. As awesome as John Carpenter's music is for movies, and as awesome as Isaac Hayes has made music for movies, I would have loved to have seen them team up for a fucking end credit song or something. I mean, to have have the Shaft theme song mixed with like some Carpenter themes. Yeah. I mean, that might be the greatest theme song for a yeah. movie of all time. Dude, I could I could see that, like, at least for, like, a Duke theme. Because he played the Duke, like, yeah. have, like, some funky... I mean, maybe he didn't want to take the mood out of it or oh, something. Man. You know, like, if, if all of a sudden there was yeah, some, like, get it. coming in, like... That's Sometimes you see, like, a lead actor who's also a singer in their spare time, and they'll do the theme song, yeah. and that kind of ruins the whole movie. I get it. Shaft theme song is one of the most famous, iconic theme songs in cinema history, and then obviously Carpenter, probably his, his gold star moment throughout his entire career, and just, yeah. I would have loved to have seen those two combined. That would have been awesome. That's an interesting idea. <laughs> interesting idea. Do you have any closing thoughts on Escape from New York? Just uh, top to bottom, it's just great. I mean, I can't pick apart a movie like this that, like, all of Carpenter's movies are just awesome to me, and I don't want to sit here every time we do that episode be like so awesome so awesome so awesome yeah. every time but i can't look you at can't help movies. it 
Yeah, you'd be lying look, if you didn't. <laughs> exactly. I, like I can't look at the movies with a critical eye either, because mm-hmm. you want. What am I going to say? They're entertaining as hell. His movies don't really have a polish to them. They have mm-hmm. like a Hollywood shine because of his film school. But at the same time, there's not wrapped with a bow sort of feeling you get with his movies. No, but um, you know what? And, and this is going to be ridiculous. I even say this. You really feel like a real hammer and nails, like a carpenter's really been working <laughs> yeah. on. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you really yeah. feel like a blue collar carpenter has been working on his movies. They they got a real beat of sweat to them. They have been delivered with some hard work. He's got a sense for like for dialogue and colloquial sort of back and forths with people. He's got a real <laughs> ear for that kind of thing. When we return, we will be talking about 1982's The Thing. Its origin, alien, location, Antarctica, age, unknown, intent, survival. Destination, man. John Carpenter's The Thing, the ultimate in alien terror, rated R, starts Friday at a theater near you. Check newspapers for local listings. This is Carpenter's suspenseful chess game of trust versus necessity. A research team in Antarctica are terrorized by 22-year-old Rob Bottin's glorious practical effects creatures as Dean Cundy returns to prove once and for all this is his masterpiece as he transforms the third act into Planet Hoth with flair. Mark, what are your first memories of The Thing? They kind of border with my memories of Halloween, where I saw that kind of on TV first. I feel like I saw it earlier than I should have, just like Halloween. I've seen this movie either as many times as Halloween or maybe even more. It's always been around as far as my horror-filled life of movie watching. Like Escape has been copied and copied. So has this, like from X-Files to Supernatural, I think, had one. But I'm sure it's all with love. You said that it's your favorite Carpenter film. I am fully aware that I know that it's his best movie. So I guess in a roundabout way, I'm admitting this is sort of my favorite Carpenter film, but it's actually not. We haven't gotten there yet. I don't think you'll be surprised when we get to my favorite Carpenter film. Um, (laughs) I think I've already put it together, but I'm not going to say anything. This is Carpenter's masterpiece for sure. This is where he really shows off everything. This is lighting. This is suspense. This is practical effects, acting, script writing, location shooting. This is everything in his Rolodex all out on display. A budget of $15 and only grossed $19 This is basically a flop. This is part of his Apocalypse trilogy? Yes, I I actually made a note later. Prince of Darkness and Mouth of Madness. I've also heard it called End of the World trilogy. It's almost like Fulci's Gates of Hell trilogy. That's what it is. It's like this disparate thing where they don't really have anything to do with each other, mm-hmm. but maybe they're working towards the same end. If you want to be a completist and you want to see the entire trilogy, mm-hmm. Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness, in some way, have some threads tied to the thing. According to Carpenter, this is not a remake. Mm-hmm. Um, this is based on the novel Who Goes There, which was Thing from Another Planet. Is that what the original name the of the Thing from Another World? Thing from I think another is what world. it's gotcha. Yeah, I mean, okay. essentially it's the same. Both based on the same book, but this is not a remake. It was written by Bill Lancaster which is Burt Lancaster's son. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, he, he wrote The Bad News Bears, which I always loved when I was a kid. Um, <laughs> That's yeah. such a crazy... <laughs> I, I can see a lot of the same cursing and, and just not getting along with each other type of stuff. Yeah. So I can almost... If you think about like the formation of people not getting along and arguing, he, he definitely has that down for sure. Yeah. You 
that's pretty funny. Is basically that, that is the yeah. only thing that came out. Of <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The, uh, the testing of the blood with the hot wire and stuff, that all came from Bill Lancaster. One of the main things we need to talk about is the genius Rob Bottin. The legacy that has lasted as long as the thing has really ties a lot to the Bottin practical effects. He started production on this movie at 21 and he finished the movie at only 22, which when you watch this movie and you see how much work and stuff he put into this movie at the age of 22 and he has an entire production house, an entire major motion picture resting on his shoulders. This movie does not work without his effects, period. And Carpenter has even gone on the record of saying that. So to have all that on his shoulders at the age of 22 is fucking mind-numbing, man. Yeah, it's, it's, it blows me away. I didn't know that. I I, yeah. I I knew it was early in his career, but not that early. 20 I mean, fucking this... two. He did The Howling at 21. That's fucking insane, bro. That's crazy. That's insane. That's crazy. It's beyond me. It's especially like there's a sculpture. It's a thing that has like Blair is able to kind of put it all together yeah. when he sees it. There's a moment when the angle uh, on the face, which is like two faces stretched mm-hmm. out, mm-hmm. Botine like captures this like look of just sheer pain and terror yeah. and panic in this sculpture that I you almost have to look away. He was so stressed out from this movie that he was hospitalized for exhaustion, double pneumonia, and a bleeding ulcer. That Botine? all stemmed. Yeah, that was oh, all. God. That all stemmed from his fucking workload. On top of doing all the practical effects, he really lobbied to play the role of Palmer, the stoner guy. Yeah. He wanted to play that, and all the other cast members kind of freaked out on him, and they're like, "No, man, oh. you got to stick to what you're doing. You're already doing too much." But he originally That's wanted crazy. to play Palmer. And backing huh. up a tick, did you know he plays Blake, the pirate from The Fog, the guy with the glowing red eyes? That's Rob Bottin. That's Bottin. I don't know if I'd heard that before. I, I didn't I, either until I, I started know, doing my research. That's pretty yeah, good. I was just about to team. ask, has he acted before? I mean, yeah. that's, to do that kind of thing, which is almost like stunt work in a way where you mm-hmm. just kind of a presence, almost like the shape, I guess he's the shape of that movie yeah. in a way, the shape of the movie, the shape from how <laughs> the shape of things to come. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, <laughs> things, but yeah, I was, yeah. I was like, has he ever acted before? I don't know if I've ever seen a special effects guy want to act. That's kind of crazy. That's cool. Well, maybe Nick and Tara, he was in from best till dawn and oh, was he? Savini. Cool. Savini. Oh, Savini. Yeah, yeah. Savini. Yeah. You're right. Okay. Yeah. Touche. Savini. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the workload had gotten so much for him that he actually had to call in Stan Winston. Winston did the entire dog effect. That oh, entire scene is all Winston's really? factory that did that. It blends perfectly with everything. That's a great point you pulled out because as fucked up and twisted and varied as every creature is, and dear God, every creature has its own unique look, I would definitely yeah. say you still felt like it was coming from the same effects artist. The dog effect does not look like it was made from the guy who does Terminator and all the other stuff. The that his exhaustion affected that. That's the first big moment where you see something happen. Everything else has always been a glimpse here, a taste there. That dolly shot of Clark walking the dog to the kennel. Mm-hmm. You feel something on the way. You just yep. know it. It's not just the music. It's that visual language of that shot. You're just like, yep. oh. So then when you hear that, like, oh. Dude, that's another thing. The sound design in this oh, movie yeah. scares the life out of me. Every time yeah. I see it. We had already seen a little bit of dog violence. What's your thoughts on Ice Cream Girl getting killed from Assault versus them dropping grenades and shooting at a dog in the opening sequence. Yeah, it's a little in your face. Like, <laughs> I, It's a little in your face. It's nothing compared to when Max starts going ape shit shooting the dogs late, like later in that same scene we were talking about. He goes full Jack Torrance, man. He destroys all the communication, kills all the dog. He's going full shining there, man. Yeah, and Clark's reaction to him when he just blatantly just shotguns the dog that's getting mm-hmm. choked. If you're seeing that play out in front of you, 
You're right. blasting at everything in that kennel. I don't care. Like yeah. Clark is all sentimental about the dogs. And I love Richard Masur as Clark. He plays it perfectly. He mentioned Escape from New York's cast. This cast is just as good. A lot of them stand out and you know them from other things. The characters mm-hmm. are so perfectly realized. I agree. They play off each other very well. They're able to play the delirium mixed with confusion, mixed with the lack of trust. And they're all able to play off each other. This was Keith David's first movie ever. And he really? kills it. Yeah, it's his first movie. Yeah, wow. it's his first movie. You and I have both gone on to be huge Keith David fans. Besides Kurt Russell, I would say Keith David is one of the few who kept going on and doing some major, yeah. major, major roles. Carpenter has an eye for good actors and how to yeah. mix and mold them and put them in with other people who know what they're doing. And when you have Kurt Russell and Wilford Brimley and, and Keith David all bouncing off each other, you're going to get some great performances for sure. Wilford Brimley too. like, oh. But yeah, at Childs, when he's like, I just cannot believe any of this voodoo bullshit. Mm-hmm, like, it's mm-hmm. so good. I will say time has kind of helped this movie out too because we don't get practical effects anymore. Everything's so CGI and as good as CGI has gotten, there's still something tangible about practical effects. It's a real treasure to be able to go back and watch some of these movies from the 80s where they're still doing practical effects. I have this note here. I just put, this dog does some of the finest acting in the entire film. <laughs> I mean, you brought, brought up the opening when the Norwegians are shooting at the dog and dropping grenades on it. And when that dog noses its snout out of the door, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, Stevie Wonder's playing in the background and it's mm-hmm. like creeping down the hall, camera's tracking it, and then it kind of walks into that room and pauses then walks the rest of the way in and the shadow yeah. turns. Like there is just so many great ideas and moments in the movie that just build and build and build. And then that kennel scene happens and it's just like, what is going on? Yeah. Like, it is the best. White titles on black. That's what I was going to bring up, man. Just, you, again, you know, setting the stage. logo with the thing. There was something where they filled a, a fish tank up with smoke and then they put a garbage bag over top of that and, and they burned. burned through the logos and the smoke and the light. It's all done practically, man. And that's the shit that I missed. You mentioned it's a chess game in the mm-hmm. intro. Mm-hmm. The scene where we're introduced to Mac, he's playing chess with the computer. And, you know, she's like checkmate and he opens up thing and pours yeah. the whiskey in the guts right. of the cheating bitch, right? Yeah. So I was like, man, this is like a symbolic thing showing us that Mac is going to go to any lengths to find out the core of a problem, find out any kind of way he can get to the solution that's good, not just for him, but for everybody. Mm-hmm. And it's like a really interesting little way to show that, you know, yeah. like he's willing to short out his entire computer yeah, yeah. to at least get a draw in the right. chess game. Yeah. And it really foreshadows what he eventually has to do. Yeah. Because if he can't win, other world- he'll destroy everything. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just <laughs> this otherworldly thing. It's like, you have no idea what to do here. So pour the whiskey in the guts of the computer. Because you're right. That is is the ending of the movie. He can't win. He's in a lose yeah. situation and he destroys everything with fire. So yeah, you're very on point bringing that up. It hit me this viewing. I've never mm-hmm. thought of that before. Did you know that was Adrian Barbeau's voice? When? Of the computer. Oh, the computer. No, <laughs> yeah. that's great. Yeah. So it's like he's So technically that, like, he just killed ending. her again? <laughs> 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 that's two movies in a row he kills off his ex-wife that's pretty, <laughs> that's pretty funny and it's the only female character in the whole movie too uh, McCready has these like really awesome sunglasses Norwegian has the sunglasses that look like Willy Wonka's uh, oh yeah the, the TV the slit. thing yeah, yeah, the slit. Yeah. Gary shoots his eye out with the yeah, the, yeah exactly you see that flap of skin mm-hmm. and he just twitches the beginning bendings get shot the first thing he does is he goes right for the J&B whiskey it's like uh, McCready's got it in his hand because mm-hmm. he just <laughs> came, came down from right. killing the computer or whatever they had like a lifetime supply of J&B, man. Like no Quaker oh, Oats, just you know, straight up J&B whiskey, you know man. It's funny? The <laughs> scene where Reedy comes back in, breaks in, and he's totally almost frozen. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. much later, and he's holding the dynamite, and he's like, if, if I go, we all go. My favorite shot, by the way. Favorite shot of the whole movie. The reverse shot of that where they're in, all in the doorway and Russell's on the right side of the frame. 
on the left side, you see boxes and boxes of milk duds. <laughs> That's hilarious. I know. And I was like, I didn't see milk that. Duds? Milk duds and JMB. Yeah, what no, a fucking like, diet, man, for Antarctica. So Wilford Brimley is investigating the creature that first time. Hey, what was your thoughts on him putting the fucking eraser into the thing and then putting it in his mouth? The very yeah, that's next the, it's Man, disgusting. I almost throw up every single time. It's I mean, what's up? Wilford Brimley, though, in that same scene when he's basically just giving exposition mm-hmm. about what he's found or what it seems like what the discovery is, it, it's – in any other actor's hands, I think it would be like just like a slog to get through. You're just hearing information, but the way he does it, it's just yeah. you're you're intrigued, you're interested, you're hanging on his every word. Well, you're talking about surreal situations. You can't sell surreal situations without performances to bring to life what the script is. This animal takes the shape of a dog and it splits things open, and there's grossness and a severed head walking around as a spider. That shit is gonna come off like super campy unless you have really, really, really good performances. There's almost a scene that where Blair's doing the autopsy of the burned out thing that they mm-hmm. discover. I put in my notes, Blair's reactions are all of our reactions because he's birthing almost where he's taking this other thing out of the burned out shell. And every time he sees something else, he goes, oh, mm-hmm. oh, oh. Like he just keeps going up and up with his reaction before yeah, he kind of sure. lays it out for everybody. And you're right. He sells it. They all sell it. It's great. It's so funny that the sound effect of wind, it's like the only sound effect that does this universally. If you just have that blanketed across a movie for two hours, you know nonstop that you can't take a breath because they're isolated. And I don't know why that sound effect is so ingrained in people's head. You, you can't run. You can't hide. Wind causes stress and nervousness. And the whole movie is like that. Yeah, you know, the cold. cold. I mean, they had to have dropped the temperature on their sets too. When it wasn't on location, yeah, they dropped it down. What we see today, they don't do that. They digitally yeah. put in breath. These guys are shooting on location and they're shooting on sets that are iced down. So they're actually seeing the breath, but the wind and the ice and the elements also just constant pressure on the cast. I loved it. There's two scenes of misdirection I wanted to talk about. And the first one I want to talk about is the copper arm scene. That's the scene where McCready is about to kind of like keel over out of exhaustion. He's covered in ice in his beard. He's holding sticks of dynamite and he's got that flamethrower and everyone's ready to jump him. And Carpenter does this amazing shot. It's the shot right before copper's arms go into the corpse. Yeah, Norris, that's right. And so right before that shot, they take a shot of McCready, his fading, and Clark has that surgical knife in his hand. It's behind his back, and Childs and Nas are right off the side getting ready to pounce on him. And so you're concentrated on that. You're not even paying attention to the person they're trying to rescue with the defibrillator yeah. off to the other side of the room. And you're not even paying attention to that. You don't care because you're getting ready to watch what you think is the hero of the movie get jumped by a bunch of people. They go straight from that shot right over to what you think is going to be a normal trying to bring this guy back to life. And boom. Boom, that's when his chest opens up and the entire scene explodes. That was an amazing misdirection. The guy who plays Norris, they clearly make it a point throughout the movie, even if the person is a copy mm-hmm. or the thing, to hit it right on the nose, like they don't even know. Mm-hmm. They don't know that they're the thing. Because Childs, I mean, to skip to the blood test scene, when he's like, just do it, mm-hmm. when he says to put the hot wire on his blood, he is so relieved. And McCready even says, I'm going to show you what I know already. I don't really buy that he knows it because they've really taken the pains to show that no one really knows that they're a copy. I don't think anyone does. And talking about the scene when they're on the couch, there's a back and forth between Gary and McCready. So you got Kurt Russell going against Donald Moffat. Everyone thinks the character Gary was the last one to have the key to the blood supplies. Everyone is looking at him and no yeah. one's looking at the stoner dude. There's dialogue between McCready and Gary. Gary's like, you know, this is pure 
sheer nonsense. This doesn't prove, quote unquote, a thing. And they're yeah. arguing back and forth. And you're just concentrating on McCready and you're just concentrating on Gary and you're not looking at the stoner guy. They take a shot of him and he does this little subtle curl with his mouth that disarms you as an audience. So you know that it's not him because he's the subtle comic relief in this scene. And yeah. then boom, because they're having this argument with these two other people that turns oh, yeah. out to be the stoner. You don't think to be looking at him because he's given these goofy little looks on his face. You don't suspect him because you suspect Gary the whole time. I love how every actor gets their moment to scowl or look menacingly toward Mac because he heats the wire. Gary, before he starts protesting and they start mm-hmm. arguing, he looks really apprehensive. Yeah. And then you look at Windows and he's staring him down almost like menacing. Like you said, the stoner Palmer, he gets this thing where he's back and forth. He does a little comical smirk, mm-hmm. but he's also shiftily looking around. So it's like he vacillates back and forth between they have no idea that they're the thing or maybe they do. And that's the whole point of the movie, I guess. He doesn't want you to feel like you can nail anything down. The scene where McCready throws the dynamite, that was actual real stick of dynamite that he threw. It was like way too close to him. What? Completely like knocked him off his ass. When you threw the dynamite here. brother, I want to tell you something. That woke me up in a hurry. You weren't ready for this explosion. It was over before it happened. Watch yourself now as you throw this. Back there. Whammo, man. It went right by me. I mean, I felt stuff go through me on that. (laughs) I was just lucky. We don't see that type of stuff in movies anymore. The actor throwing real sticks of dynamite. It's not like toward the end when he tosses it to the Blair thing. That one scene where he throws it on the dead body, I thought that was fucking awesome. Oh, dude, it was great. I can't believe it. I just watched it yesterday. Once they get transformed into the thing, they all look the same. Yeah, yeah. You're a thingist. (laughs) Hope is not alive at the end of this movie, man. Yeah, ambiguous too. I love, and I don't think audiences at the time are ready for that ambiguous type Mm -hmm. of ending where you don't know they could both be sitting there as carbon copies and not knowing it, or they could be fine and not know it. Childs, are we, we're not going to get out of here, are we? And McCready says, like, maybe we shouldn't. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's great. That means he's no, he knows he's taken up the mantle of like, okay, if this is where it's got to end yeah. for humanity, then cool. And they blew up that entire station, man. That entire set piece was completely blown up. They had you back up for miles. They said it was an explosion like you have never seen or heard before. That set that they blew up, that was the Norwegian base. When they go back at the beginning of the movie and they oh, yes, that's yes. cool. So, so it's like the same thing. Yes. Ah, that's yes. great. So once they idea. blew up, yeah, once they blew up outpost, they that's reshaped great. it and that, that became the Norwegians of base. That's camp. great. The fact that he made the team Norwegian is interesting because you watch the original Howard Hawks movie and they're American. They're speaking mm-hmm. in English. No one's gonna be able to understand them. Mm-hmm. If somebody spoke Norwegian, none of this would be happening. They'd have killed a dog and been done with it. Just having McCready just say, you know, why don't we just wait here for a while and see what happens? And then boom, that music kicks in, the fade to black. I'm not sure that the 1982 audiences loved it. Now looking back and you're right, you don't know if one of them is the thing, one of them's not. Um, either way, they're probably just going to burn alive. Childs was set up for doubt. Knowles makes a comment about seeing Childs running by mm-hmm. outside mm-hmm. Yeah. whenever he and McCready are setting stuff up or trying to. And that just totally plays toward the ending. It sets up doubt for Childs. And then the next time you see him is the ending. So you yeah. don't see him forever. Gary's death where Wilford Brimley puts his fingers through his flesh like that stayed with me for so long (laughs) through the years it's so crazy it's just so just awful (laughs) agreed I mean the movie stays with you the ending stays with you thank goodness but man that in particular is just so nasty yeah for me it's uh, going back to that favorite shot you mentioned earlier McCready has got icicles on his beard and he has just come out of a frozen tundra and he doesn't trust a goddamn person and he's lit by blue flares and then red lighting and oh god dude I 
I love that shot, man. I wanted to touch base again on Dean Cundy. In my opinion, this is his masterpiece. I personally believe that Back to the Future 3 is a close second. I think it's just an absolutely gorgeous looking movie. No, it's yeah. great. Yeah, for, for what it is, for what it was doing. And it's like, I guess, in the late 80s, early 90s, like the Western thing was the it's thing. One of the, you, people probably don't consider that a Western. They probably consider it a sci-fi. But if you consider it a Western, it's one of the most beautiful Westerns I've ever seen. So oh, I, actually, I mean, if he, if he approached it like he was shooting the searchers or something, then yeah. for sure, man. He it's could gorgeous light looking. that thing up. Dude, I've got the 4K of that. I was trilogy. about to say, I, yeah. I need to put all that in, man. Yeah, it yeah. looks really good. Back to the Future 1 and 2. They look great in 4K, but they kind of suffer a little bit from the generation loss from all the, the special effects that they were doing at the time. They weren't doing as much in Part 3. It was pretty much once they get into the past, it is straight up Western, so it doesn't suffer so much from generation loss. It's the best looking of the three, I would say. But yeah, man, Kundi, I just think he killed it with this. And one of the things that makes this movie so beautiful and so original, the flares that they use to light basically the third act of this movie, flares are an uncontrollable source of light. The lighting that you get is not really controlled. You can't say, well, at this point when he steps here, we're going to have this amount of light or we're going to have this side of his face lit. Flares have a mind of their own and it just happened to work out perfectly. When you have the master of lighting like Kundi and you mix in uncontrollable things like flares, you just get a magic trick that happened in front of you on film. And as good looking as the movie is for the first two thirds, it's that last third that for me really jumps out. And I'm sure the new lenses and the film stock didn't hurt either capturing that stuff. It is no secret that this movie was pretty much a box office bomb. It opened up the same day as Blade Runner. So uh, <laughs> I find it very funny that uh, two of my favorite movies that weren't appreciated at the time have gone on to be very appreciated later on in their life. The big issue was is that it came out two weeks after E.T. Back then, movies could stay in theaters for months at a time. And if they were really good, like E.T. and or any other Spielberg movie that came out at those times, and Spielberg was the guy who made the actual term blockbuster from the movie Jaws because yep. people were wrapped around the block to see these movies. But when you have a movie like E.T., which is one of his biggest successes coming out in 82, where you have a very friendly alien and very happy movie competing with these downtrodden climate weather, rainy or snowy, depressing ending movies that don't give you a definitive ending, they didn't stand a chance. So E.T. wiped them <laughs> off the box office uh, slate. In E.T., you're kind of bounding out of the theater being like, yeah, and the <laughs> thing, you're just kind of shuffling out going, oh my God. It's Milk Duds or Reese's. Which one are you yeah. going to go with? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> they had done a trail of Milk Duds for the thing. Not that I give a shit about other people's opinions. Roger Ebert famously called this movie a barf bag movie. <laughs> I can see funny. him saying. Well, it's when not the, for the squeamish at all. God. No, for sure. Yeah. The test screenings were a big issue for this movie. The original Drew Struzan poster was originally just black and white. And then they quickly wanted to change that to color. Anything that looked iffy, they were changing in the last couple of weeks before the movie came out. It didn't work, obviously. But original tagline was, man is the warmest place to hide. And that was famously written by Stephen Frankfurt who wrote the alien tagline in space no one can hear you scream they ended up changing it to the ultimate in alien terror because alien came out in 79 was still a very popular time and they wanted to try to capitalize on that i actually really like the tagline man is the warmest place to hide i wish it's they would have kept that but yeah it's perfect it, it totally gives you like what you're about to see carpenter freaked out so much from the test audience reactions that he actually in the last week before the movie came out wanted to change the title back to who goes there because oh. again the thing wasn't resonating well with the test audiences uh, at all back in 
1982, Morricone does the score for the thing. It is nominated for a Razzie Award. Oh, they can go fuck but, themselves, by the way. Um, fuck that. Also, Anyways. It always amazes me that Razzies have been around as long as they have. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Every I time I hear something, I'm like, it was around then? Obviously, it does not deserve a Razzie. 33 years later, the same score is put into the Hateful Eight soundtrack, wins Morricone the Oscar. Like, I mean, how else do you need it clearly spelled out for you that this movie has now being appreciated in the correct light? Technically, they say it's unused tracks, but it's the same fucking theme. But yeah, it's pathetic that it went from Razzie to Oscars 33 years later. It's that's, fucking it's, pathetic. It's insane. That's stupid, man. I, I've never <laughs> given Razzies any kind of thought. Albert Whitlock, who probably is the most famous Matt artist in all of cinema, he got to start with The Birds. After The Birds, he did all of Hitchcock's Matt paintings through the rest of his career. He was under contract with Universal at the time, and he came in and did some of those matte paintings where they're out looking at the alien ship. And they animate on them too, if you notice. There's like the sun behind a cloud or something just creeps across and it just adds life to it. And you can still tell it's a painting, but it just looks awesome. And the comp work is just great. When they're coming down the mountain, the drawing of the ship is just awesome. Hey, I was going to ask you, did you ever see the prequel with the Mary Elizabeth Winstead? Did not. I don't know if it's a proud thing to say, but I have not seen that. And I actively didn't want to see it. Interesting. Because to me, it already has a prequel. And that's the Howard Hawks one. And yeah. to me, it's like Carpenter kind of wanted it to be a successor of that. It was super confusing that they called it the same fucking name, too. That was weird to me. Yeah, yeah. Just they called the it thing. the thing. Yeah. I'm like, hey, what? Did you like it or was it kind of like... It's been know? years. When I do these podcasts, I try to be as thorough as possible. Like I did the Assault remake and oh, yeah, yeah. maybe not that thorough because, dear God, I'm never rewatching that Fog remake. Holy oh, shit. I've never seen that um, one either. Oh, dude, what a... Purposefully dirt. stayed away from Jeez, that. Jeez, that is a road apple. I did want to bring up that this might possibly be Carpenter most dangerous set ever. You know, between Russell basically blowing himself up, Botine talks about the, the crawling head effect where he was basically filling the room with explodable gas fumes. So when they lit it on fire, the entire fucking room exploded. Every explosion in movies happens in slow motion, so it takes longer. But in real life, an explosion is evaporated in less than two seconds. He said the entire room exploded. No one caught on fire and everyone just froze and just looked at Botine like, holy shit, did that just happen? He almost it's killed like 12 of, people. It's insane what they did. There was at one point they were busing the entire crew up this super narrow path to get up to Antarctica and a bus completely lost control and almost killed all the cast members and stuff. So I was <laughs> like, holy shit, how did this fucking thing ever get made? In doing all these, I'm discovering that Carpenter might be my favorite filmmaker. <laughs> to me, it's always been David Lynch. I always put him up there because his stuff is always, you can puzzle over it and puzzle over it and you never know and you can kind of get it and then it might elude you. But with Carpenter, what you see is what you get. There are yeah. subtleties in there. Delivers every time. If someone came up to you and they're like, well, I've never seen a Carpenter movie. I've heard about them a million times. God, you can't go wrong with a thing. What we're doing here with this is very completist, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it really, you get a handle on the amount of stuff he's trying mm -hmm. to do and the success he has, and not just box office wise or reception, but just like the finished product. You just see him building on it. Everything he's learned up until this point, he's just infusing into this movie and mm -hmm. you can tell. This could possibly be Carpenter's best. That's why we went on and on and on about this movie. Again, my favorite movie is coming up a couple more episodes. I would probably not recommend my favorite movie to everyone else. If you're going to watch a movie that's Carpenter's, this is his fucking crowning achievement. So Peak, peak Carpenter, I think. When we return, we will be coming back with 1983's Christine. Stephen King, John Carpenter, two great masters of terror, have teamed up to take you for a ride. I knew a guy had a car like that once. He killed himself in it. Ah! <laughs> 
Empress D, based on the best-selling novel by Stephen King, rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. Carpenter's story of a teenage boy who falls in love with a girl who just happens to be a serial killer with a tailpipe. Death to the shitters of the world. Mark, in Carpenter's filmography, where does this land for you? Not as high as most. <laughs> that doesn't mean that I didn't like it at all. I really mm-hmm. enjoy this movie. I just feel like I gotta love it in the fact that it's Carpenter and King together, which yeah. King is my favorite author, similar to like vinyl, I guess, but it started <laughs> before that. I mm-hmm. started a collection of Stephen King hardcovers, and I've got all but maybe count them on one hand of wow. Wow. And they're all the short story collection. So I've pretty much got almost all of his novels. And I enjoy the story. We've been talking about high concept ideas yeah. with Carpenter. I feel like this is a definite high concept idea. It's a mm-hmm. really odd story and a really strange idea. It is filled with just gorgeous shots of this car. And the stunt work is great. I just don't know if it's like tip top, maybe somewhere below the middle even mm-hmm. for me as far as Carpenter. This is only the second time that I've seen Christine. I mean, it speaks volumes too as to ha- why you know I haven't visited it very mm-hmm. much and I've owned it on Blu-ray for years. Not as a completist Carpenter, but kind of like I'm going to get all his movies just like how I have Scream 4 when I didn't really like that movie. But <laughs> when it became Wes Craven's final film right. as he you know has passed, I'm just kind of like, well, I've got to get this movie now because it was yeah. his last movie. So I'm kind of that way with Christine, but I do enjoy this movie and seeing it again almost like the first time. So it's a solid little movie. It's a fun little movie. Again, Carpenter and King. Like I, yeah. I really enjoy that combo. Confidence really plays into a director and the choices he makes next in his career path. The thing was a huge fucking thud for him. And so much so that Universal bought him out of their contract. He had a three-picture deal with them. They bought him out of it. Yeah, I did notice the Columbia logo at the beginning of it. He was basically a gun for hire. This one went into production before the book even came out. This is when Stephen King was like, white hot the really? time. That's yeah. kind of cool. They bought the rights to the book. Production even started before the book even came out. So he was a gun for hire. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm comparing Maximum Overdrive versus Christine, but I mean, you're talking about sort of the same thing where you have vehicles that have a life of their own and can cause death and damage. You look at the difference between a coked up Stephen King versus <laughs> John Carpenter, who was a little down on his luck. There's a huge difference there. Yeah. The beginning of the movie where you have George Thorogood's Bad to the Bone. By the way, first movie to ever to use that song. And it's the same thing it does with Terminator 2 it sets a certain tone like not to take this movie too seriously and if you go in with that mentality this movie can be a lot of fun it's a B movie with some awesome rad shit in it that's the way I kind of look at this movie for sure yeah there's some there's some great stuff in it I love how some stuff is way over the top mm-hmm. I love how some stuff is a little more subtle if it was anybody else but Carpenter I feel like the movie wouldn't just have that mm-hmm. Carpenter touch you know it's been a bit since I've read the book mm-hmm. but I have read it through twice how does the ending compare to the book did he just kind of do his own thing I can't remember. What I do remember about the book is it's told in the first person by Dennis, Arnie's friend. You look at the two of them, yeah, Arnie's the main character, but Dennis really is the hero of the Mm. story. So I heard in the book that it's not so much that it's Christine that's possessed, it's the dead body of the old guy who sells him the car, the guy from Home Alone. Yeah, Um, the the neighbor from Home Alone. I noticed that right away. He sells Christine the car to Arnie, but in the book, it's his dead brother that's speaking to him from the backseat. And that might be what Carpenter changed where he's just talking to the car. There's two reasons, budget, and then also two years prior in American Werewolf in London, they had David Naughton speaking to a dead Griffin Dunn. Well, they just did that two years ago. We don't want to repeat that. That's interesting. We'll do Landis retrospective. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> might, might need to stop at one point. <laughs> About the halfway mark. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See Carpenter through, but yeah. Probably just do the first half of John Landis. 
for obvious reasons. <laughs> or pick and choose, maybe. <laughs> Best of. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We won't be doing Beverly Hills Cop 3 for sure. Let's dive into Christine. A $10 million budget versus $21 million gross. I did want to talk about the cast. Keith Gordon, I know you and I both know him from Dress to Kill, but ended up becoming one of TV's premier directors. He used to direct Dexter, Nurse Jackie, some of your episodes of The Leftovers, which I know you're a big fan of that yes. show. Yes. And he did Better Call Saul. He's done some Fargo episodes. Yes, because I recently caught up with that show too. And which one? Record, Better Call Saul. And I recognize uh, his name. I'm up on my Gordon, that's great. John Stockwell, who does play Dennis. Did you ever see Into the Blue? No, I know it, with the Paul Walker. It's not bad. I did see that he's got a little bit of a directing career also. He, he did the Blue Crush thing, and he's kind of cornered the market for surfer movies. <laughs> he was one of the pilots in Top Gun. Yeah. So. That's pretty great. This model Plymouth car actually does not come in red. It only comes in white. <laughs> that's why in the beginning you see that factory line of it's all white. draws attention to the fact that there's one red. That's funny when Harry Dean Stanton pops up. An hour and eight minutes in into the damn hour and 50 minute movie. <laughs> yeah. I was like, where's Harry Dean? Man, I saw his name again. I want to see Harry Dean. Yeah. And I forgot he plays that state police detective, but yeah, he shows up and he's like, yeah, I don't think they make the shade of red anymore, right? Now that you say that, that's kind yeah. of funny. Factory worker who's smoking a cigar in the car, yeah, he kind of deserves to get it, to be honest with you. I don't want my brand new car smelling like someone else's ashtray. Yeah, that's the first you. thing I thought when he sat in, I was like, man, I know it's like 57 or whatever, but I'm like, come on, dude. <laughs> yeah, dude, quit smoking my car I might purchase. And then he move. ashes on the covering yeah. the plastic Government. Yeah. Oh, he's gone. You've asked about this before in the past with these lower budget movies. They had a Rolling Stone song in this movie. That stuck out to me too. Yeah. I was like, the dude from Ghostbusters sitting there with <laughs> yeah. rocking a beast of burden. I was like, what? This dude is like trying to choose between Alexander Paul and Kelly Preston. I'm like, you're, come on, bro. Are you even going for one? Like, you're good either way. This is one of the things that was like so over the top for me. Number one, the teenage hormonal dudes and looking mm -hmm. back through the lens of now because mm -hmm. I feel like movies are time capsules and you cannot judge things based right. on the lens of now. You can mm -hmm. look at it, oh, that was crazy then or whatever. It's all such over-the-top hype stuff. I think he was called a pornographer of gore. That really stuck with him. When he came into the Christine production, he did not want to do a lot of gore. Columbia wanted and rated our movie, which is funny because nowadays, every one of these companies is trying to fight for PG-13. They really wanted a hard R and so to make Make up for the lack of gore, they beefed up the dialogue to sound super so, gross. And it is so over the top. Yeah, it's really raunchy stuff. I mean, it's but like even, meatballs and Revenge of the Nerds mm. with like a horror film. It's crazy. Yeah, especially Dennis's other friend, the one guy straight up, like, oh, she's got the body of a slut. And you're like, yeah, oh my God, yeah, dude. Yeah. A lot of hormones in this movie for yeah, sure. Yeah, but laying it on pretty thick with the <laughs> hormonal teenagers. Yeesh. Like, yeah, <laughs> and then about, I don't remember the book had this dialogue. Right. Yeah. But with King, sometimes he does. King's kind of over the top with some of his dialogue. Mm -hmm. Robert Prosky as the Darnell. God, Every line he has, I was like, it had to have been taken straight from the book. It sounds like all the Stephen King stuff. He felt like his character wasn't large enough. He made them put back in a lot of the dialogue. Prosky is the goddamn man in this movie, like straight up. Every word that he says is pure comedy gold. Thief It's what I know him from. He's a complete dick and thief. He's from Mrs. Doubtfire. Doesn't matter yeah. any amount of money that you pay me. Yeah, I'm you not come in and do a couple lubes. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Christine comes in after being totally burned. <laughs> I was going to ask you that question. A ghost car that has nobody driving, it comes in smoking hot. Do you sit down in the front seat or what the fuck, man? Why would he do that? Yeah, why in the world? It's, it's one of those horror movie tropes where you're like, yeah. no. Like yeah. opening it up, sure. But as soon yeah. as there's nobody in there, yeah, you don't get sit out. down. You get that's out how he dies, there. by the way. But yeah. I'm be honest with you, it's kind of a lame death. Like you said, he wanted less gore. At least see that big wad of chew come out of his mouth oh, or dude, something. That would have been hilariously perfect for it just like, bleh, yeah. like one the last gold spin. crapper bleh. oh 
Every single scene he's in, it's so watchable. He's so funny and he is so charismatic. It's amazing to me that you said that he was fighting to get more stuff put back in because he's <laughs> not in it that much. Maybe has three scenes, but they're so memorable. Oh, uh, the beginning, the title's over black. Then he has that logo that has the V on the Plymouth yeah. with Christine in red. No music. It's all just revs. Yeah, of I know. I love it. Great. He still sets the stage. It's I almost agree. like Christine's coming for you. That's a great point. Speaking of his music, it's there's not a lot of it. It's more like rock and roll soundtrack. I don't know if it's my favorite of the three we're discussing tonight, because that's a bold statement to say that over Morcone, but it's the one I listen to the most. You were talking about the beginning of the movie and the first time Dennis pulls into the driveway with his blue car. Dude, in 4K, you can clearly see the entire crew in the reflection of his car. I mean, oh, you're man. seeing multiple oh. people clear <laughs> as a bell in the side of the blue car. By the way, every fucking car in this movie is awesome. Dude, I totally thought that. And it, it made me think of American Graffiti also, where George Lucas just wanted to make a car about crew or a car. One of the cars. <laughs> <laughs> you know, George Lucas went back to his Detroit roots and just wanted to make a car. In the beginning of the movie, Arnie and Dennis are riding in the car. Arnie's talking about how his mom is pissed off at him, and it stems from a Scrabble game that they were playing. Last night, we were playing Scrabble, and it's like neck and neck between me and her. We blew my dad away early. Huh? So right at the end, I had this choice of putting down ratio for like five lousy points, or... Or what, Arnie? Fellatio. On a triple word score for 24 points in the game? What'd she do? She wouldn't let me have it. She won by seven points because she said obscenity is not allowed in Scrabble. Yeah. And I looked it up and it's in the dictionary. You're a jerk, Arnie. Would you ever fucking use that word if you're playing Scrabble <laughs> oh. with your mom? I love his justification of that it was going to give him more points. Like, right. that's the only reason he used it. He didn't care that it was with his mom or his whole family. And then she, he, he was like, uh, she says obscenity isn't allowed. And he's like, right. but I looked it up. It's in the dictionary. Right. <laughs> He's yeah. trying to defend it so much, yeah. but it's like, just why would you do that, man? Yeah. Oh, and I love the not fade away Buddy Holly score. And when the guy dies after ashing the cigar and it dissolves, or maybe it's a straight cut to 78 from 57 to 78. And it's mm -hmm. like this cover version of the same song, which I thought was a really cool touch. I mean, it wasn't a great cover, but it was just neat to hear that it was the same song. You just flash forward like 20 years. Like it was, yeah. it was an interesting choice. Well, the music becomes the dialogue for Christine. Which, yeah. by the way, did Bumblebee rip that off? You know what? That's a good point. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe Michael Bay's dipping in the carpenter well. Yeah, the whole like, keep been knocking, but they can't. Yeah, that's how Christine speaks through yeah. these great pop songs of different generations. Great language for this movie to have. That actor, William Ostrander, he actually ran for government. That's crazy. He went into politics <laughs> after this that's movie. That's crazy considering yeah. his yeah. lines in this I movie. Know. Is that Cuntingham's car? You know, like the language he uses in front of the teacher, too, you're like, oh, oh my God. Dude. Dude, teacher Casey, like not flinching. You can't make me. You mean I don't have the authority, you're wrong. If you mean I can't turn out your pockets. Yeah, try it, you little bald fucking, I'll knock you through the wall. Fuck! Within inches of his face, and he doesn't even flinch. Like, dude, if I was a teacher, I'd be terrified. Knowing full well that student has a knife in his pocket. Dude, and there's a lot of that in this movie, like when Arnie like confronts his dad. Listen, mister, you've been disrespectful us once too often. You go back in there and apologize to your mother right now. Hey, take your mitts off me, motherfucker. <laughs> I'm hitting the sack.
when he pins him up against the side of the staircase, that's hardcore right there. There was some dialogue in here that for me really kind of resonated. There's a scene in there where Arnie, they're asking him what his fascination with Christine is. And you're talking about a teenage boy who's been a nerd. He's been beat up his entire life. He's had nothing that's really appreciative. He's got shitty parents that don't back him up on anything. You got to understand the mentality of a person going into getting fascinated with something that gives him something back. What is it about that car, huh? I don't know. Maybe it's just that for the first time in my life, I found something that's uglier than me. And I know I can fix her up. So. You're not ugly, Arnie. I know what I am. Really kind of sets the stage for why he's doing the things that he's doing. Yeah, he has a, a couple of scenes like that too, like later on when he's talking about so love, love eats so much in your life. Like mm -hmm. you never know it'll eat so much, and he like lists all the things. He comes and visits Dennis later on. And side note, is this officially a Thanksgiving movie? <laughs> I mean, he there's also New Year's represented at some point, although you don't really. Get I didn't it. know if I was supposed to watch Planes, Trains, and then put on Christine. Yeah, right yeah, after. There, that shot <laughs> of the of the random turkey decoration yeah. that's yeah. wedged behind his pillow just yeah. to get it in the shot. So funny to me. I don't know if Carpenter's like, well, I knocked off Halloween. I got to do Thanksgiving and any other <laughs> holiday, you know? Has it ever occurred to you that part of being a parent is trying to kill your kids? Fuck, man, that is like, that's some harsh shit right there, man. Arnie is funny because he will be somewhere and then just split out of nowhere, like Irish goodbye thing. Like you never know he's leaving. That's like what he does to the whole movie. As his character changes and becomes more evil and more in tune with Christine, he starts obviously dressing more like a greaser and starts wearing more of the leather jackets and acting like someone who would drive a car from that era. And the old man from Home Alone, when he leans into Dennis, he's like, you shitter. And then he says something like, yeah, shitters of the world. Like he's he says that a few times and Arnie starts using the same terminology, very much Stephen King sounding. I think probably for you, I don't want to speak for you, but I'm assuming some of your favorite shots are when Christine is on fire. I mean, holy oh, crap. Dude. Um, so you, you, great. That is one of the most iconic fucking images in all of Carpenter's filmography. I would imagine if he was to ever get some kind of award at the Oscars where they look back throughout his career, that shot of Christine on fire in complete darkness, fucking awesome scene. But that score is top notch during that scene, man. It's awesome. But yeah, I wrote here flaming christine is a pretty insane visual yes just yes. rocketing away backing out of the station also mm -hmm. was like the gas station yeah it just looks so good when christine lays into every bully the guy from ghostbusters gets like yeah. loud by the other car and then Stu from friday the 13th just blows up with the station it's insane there's this amazing scene after the bullies have just completely smashed the shit out of christine where christine comes back to life that's all done practically they yeah. shot it in reverse obviously they had these hydraulics that caved in the car of Christine. So when you shoot it in reverse, it reinvigorates Christine, makes her back into the muscle car badass that she is. When he realizes what's going on, and then when he says, okay, show me, and the real miraculous reconstruction happens that Christine does to herself. I did want to touch base on stunt coordinator Terry Leonard, who famously is Indiana Jones's stunt double. So oh. uh, obviously top notch in the field of stunt doubling. He had to wear a flame retardant suit in that scene. There's someone actually driving Christine on fire, and he can't breathe, so he has to wear a breathing 
breathing apparatus and the fucking tinted windows are so dark because they don't want you to see that there's a stuntman in there. Carpenter purposely tinted the windows so you couldn't tell, is it Arnie or is it Christine killing? You're talking about a stunt coordinator driving Christine through an, an entire blowing up gas station, which that is an insane stunt right there. Like, what the fuck? That low to the ground shot of it exploding is <sighs> awesome. Yeah, dude. That, that glass comes right for you and hits the ground. It's it's great. When he's trying to start the car, it's not a normal sound of an engine not turning or even a starter. I swear when he first tries to turn the key and it doesn't start, I swear Carpenter put one of the photo sounds from the opening of Texas Chainsaw. I heard that on this. Did you hear it? Yes, I heard that yeah. too. Come on. Come on, Christine. Yeah, you hear the yeah, tail dude. end of it. It's like, and I was like, oh my, was that what I think it is? I even rewound that. That is so be. funny you said that. I heard that too. I was like, that sounds just like Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That's that is crazy. awesome. It is proven. He did it. Because <laughs> yeah, two people agree on it. Yes, yes. both it's of written. us agree that it happened. <laughs> There's yeah. two Carpenter nerds who agree on it. The thing was such a dark and dreary ending, but that boombox ending is so oh, fucking great. funny, I put, bro. I put the radio fake out at the end is a nice oh, fun dude. touch. Yeah, it's, it's great. That scene actually was supposed to have George Thorogood as an actor, but him and the other guy, I believe the producer who was in that scene, they got cut because they both sucked at acting so bad. But I think <laughs> having the George Thorogood... Carpenter would know. <laughs> <laughs> Please, Father, can I go home? Yes. Closing on that boombox joke is a great way to really remind you, hey, hope you had fun in this movie, but don't take it too seriously. Serious. We had fun making it. Anytime you read the description, Kirby goes bananas with a kill spree. You can't take cars that can communicate any type of seriousness. Did you ever see that movie Cat's Eye? I've seen it before, but it's okay. been a long time. Christine apparently has a cameo in that movie. Oh, really? That's funny. Yeah. Because it's another King-based thing. There's like a couple of different stories. It's mainly based on the story called Quitters, Inc., Gotcha. And that's for the James Woods thing, I think, in that movie. But gotcha. dude, there's a shot after Arnie's dead and you think that it's over. And it revs back up again and Dennis says, oh, Lee, look out. And she dives out of the way. The car rockets back toward the camera, barely mm-hmm. missing that weight-bearing pole in the garage. Right. Gets so close to the camera. But I was like, oh my God, because yeah. it's right there in your face. That whole bulldozer scene, all practical shit, man. There was a joke that was played on Carpenter on that on that day. Alexandra Paul actually has a twin sister, so they snuck her into hair and makeup and didn't tell Carpenter. And I guess she showed up to drive the bulldozer. He was directing Alexander's twin and then apparently they snuck Alexander in through the back and she popped up and like tapped him on the shoulder like, hey, what's going on? And he, you know, That's kind of funny. freaked him out. So that was kind of a funny graphic joke. Picture going, what the hell? Um, the last thing I wanted to talk about, did you ever read about this theory? Is the unnamed assembly line supervisor who discovers the dead body in the beginning, Will Darnell? Because later on in the movie, Will Darnell says... I once knew the owner of a Fury when he sees Christine for the first time. So there's an online theory that that's Will Darnell from the beginning that's, of the movie. That's an interesting... Because there's idea. like 20 years difference. Yeah, and so, he yeah. could have aged that way and stayed in the car business by just operating a junkyard. Yeah. Like, interesting. Yeah, that's a cool idea, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, if he's not wearing a name tag that says like <laughs> yeah. Darnell on yeah. it, then, you know, sure, chalk it up to fan theory, but yeah, like exactly. it makes sense to me. Do you have any other closing thoughts on Christine? Overall, it's an odd choice, but... The fact that you said he was a gun for hire after mm-hmm. the thing flopped. I think he was supposed to direct Firestarter next. Oh. And he got canned from that. So he went for another Stephen King. Yeah. That, that's kind of interesting. You know something? I think he would have made a better movie out of Firestarter, <laughs> personally. I enjoy that movie. But like, I feel like he would have made a pretty interesting Firestarter, like added some good touches. That leads back to his morale on his own skills being at an all-time low. I mean, the thing yeah. really knocked the wind out of him, man, when it was received. Yeah, that sucks, man. I, I'm, I'm sure he's loving the fact that it has such a following now. So whether or not it was his choice, I ultimately put that I felt like it was an odd choice for him. But at the same time, like I said earlier, it fits with the high 
concept ideas that he kind of seems to be coming up with himself or gravitating yeah. toward. I do feel like Christina's a dip right after the thing. The circumstances totally make sense. And I, I feel agree. like he did the best job in the world with the movie because it is entertaining as hell. Well, let's talk about what you just touched on. Do you think this is Carpenter's Peak? You know, the back-to-back magic that is Escape from New York and the thing. He gets back into peak territory after yeah. Christine. Starman is on his way up and then even the ones after Starman have gotten their cult following. Whether you want to watch a single one of Carpenter's movies or not, even if you don't like any of his movies, I definitely suggest seeking out his soundtracks. Escape from New York is a fantastic score. The Thing, not done by him, but replicating him, still a great score. And Christine has a fantastic score too. And it's the same thing with Halloween and The Fog and Assault from P613. They're all rock solid A plus scores. I'm loving the fact, like you touched on this at the beginning, like every year, Mm -hmm. essentially, he's cranking out another movie. I mean, that's something we really need to talk about, man. It doesn't happen today. Always at least two or three years between people making their movies. And whether that's because they've got like all these deals to make and Mm -hmm. the I's to dot and T's Mm -hmm. to cross. If that's the case, fine. But man, Carpenter, every year, just making these like solid movies, whether or not they're later love. You're right. It it shouldn't be brushed off. He's he's so prolific. If you've worked in any kind of production, whether it's TV or film or whatever, I'm putting together an entire motion picture and doing that every fucking year and taking on the reins of the score, the writing and the directing. It's a huge reason to appreciate Carpenter and his filmography is to get like these solid gold hits year after year after year for sure. Well, dude, I can't thank you enough for uh, discussing these movies with me, man. So far, I'm loving this, man. This has been a blast for me. It's great. It's just like I said, it's a completist thing. It's like, but I'm all about that. I'm having such a fun time right now. Um, Yeah, it's great. Next episode is going to be Starman from 1984, followed by Big Trouble Little China from 1986, followed by Prince of Darkness 1987. So if you guys want to do your homework and catch up on the movies we're going to be discussing on the next Carpenter Career Retrospective, those are the ones. Starman, Big Trouble Little China, and Prince of Darkness. Mark, I can't thank you enough, sir, for discussing John Carpenter again. I'm looking forward to the next one and the next one and the next one. Yeah, it was a pleasure. And I just want to say, I don't know if I can take this voodoo bullshit. (laughs) I hope everyone enjoyed this retrospective review of John Carpenter. Once again, thank you to Mark Talley for taking this journey with me and a huge thank you to producer Gigi Lage. We're excited to announce Sidetracked is now part of the Forwardly Network family. So check them out at forwardly.com for a complete list of all the other amazing shows that they offer. If you liked what you heard over the past hour, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, along with our official website, sidetracked.stream, which now has a list of our upcoming episodes, and I'm not going to lie to you, the next couple are going to be dope as fuck. So check us out at sidetracked.stream, and until next time, stay sick. Hi, it's Cadence. And Colin. We're the sibling duo from the comedy podcast, Be Watch Rewatch, where we be watching. Oh God, you're such a nerd. I see what you did there though. It was pretty good. <laughs> well, it's where we rewatch the greatest, badass, and bewildering TV and movies that help shape all of our lives. That means all of our lives, Busters, even you, the listeners. So come join us for the watch party. Cadence, it's a podcast. Okay, well, it's a watch party for your ear holes. Ear holes watch party. Hope to see you guys sit (laughs) soon there. Bye. (laughs) 